0: Uh, Praise God, but today is not only uh, a special day because we have all these missions testimonies, but today is also a special day because we have a special guest in the house who's going to be preaching and delivering the word for us today. Uh, uh, I just graduated from seminary a few months ago, and I did part-time studies for the last six years, and I met wonderful professors in my classes along the way. And this past semester, I took a class called Church and Society, and the professor for that class, his name is Pastor, uh, his name is Dr. Dan Armistead. I know him as Dr. Dan. Uh, he is also the senior pastor of Seoul International Baptist Church. Uh, it's near Hebangchon, where the kimchi pots are, that, that side. Uh, he has a wonderful, thriving congregation there. And on the first day of class, I, have, I asked him one question. I, I just asked him, what's your ministry background like? And the Holy Spirit must have just started moving because uh, Pastor Dan started just opening up and he just started to share for like the next hour and a half his, uh, his story of how he got into ministry, uh, how the Lord, Lord took him from business uh, and into the ministry and the amazing things that God did in the ministry and uh, the harsh ways in which the enemy opposed his ministry. And yet he just continued to stay in a place of thanksgiving. And just went on to the next assignment and continued to use his giftings powerfully to disciple many to bring revival. And, uh, you know, I love Southern Baptists. You know, Southern Baptists have a lot of strength. A, they're a very big denomination in, in America. Well, you know, the Southern Baptists also have certain reputations. But, you know, there are some good Southern Baptists that are like, that are like closet like charismatics in some sense. I know, like, Louis Giglio is one of them. Louis Louis Giglio grew up kind of Southern Baptist, but he's really a man of the Holy Spirit. And when when Pastor Dan was sharing his life story, I just realized, man, this is one of those Southern Baptists that is just so anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. He may not use all those types of terms and things like that, but sometimes it's better that way. Because, you know, God just kind of gets you, sneaky, just hits you up, you know. And uh, he's just an anointed man of God and wonderful professor. And uh, I asked him, invited him to come and speak in New Philly, and he agreed. And today is the day uh, where Pastor Dan is going to come and share the word with us. Uh, can we put our hands together for Pastor Dan Armistead as he comes to preach? Come on.
1: Amen. Well, let's keep that part about uh, charismatic uh, quiet, because, you know, I'm Southern Baptist. I've got to stay in the closet. <laughs> Actually, why do you think I'm here in Korea? <laughs> Dr. Steve Chang over at Torch one day was kind of bragging on me to some people. He said, oh, he's here in Korea. He could be in a, this big church in the United States. And I said, no, Steve, I can't. They don't want me there, because I'm not Baptist enough. <laughs> but. I'll talk about that later. I'll say a word or two about that. I'm really honored to be here. I told the leadership team uh, at the prayer meeting that I would share some stories on Pastor Christian, and they applauded. I really don't have many to share, except I want to say one thing. I thank God that, that the Lord spoke to Christian concerning something very important, punctuality. But in my class, the Lord had not spoken to him about that. So when he told me that I would be preaching today for maybe 40 minutes or so, I thought that's what you think, brother. So, uh, it's, it's good to be here and uh, good to get a little payback for for Pastor Christian and great to meet Aaron too. Pastor Aaron, just bless her heart. Um, I can see God has really blessed you with uh, a couple who loves the Lord and loves you. And those things always go together. You know, uh, I want to share today with you from Joshua chapter 5. So you can take your Bibles and be turning there. And I want to talk a little bit about shame and the effect shame has on our lives. And I guess it was in the 1990s when uh, Bill Clinton was President of the United States that God really opened my, idea, my eyes as to how powerful a force Shame can be in our lives. I was reading a Time magazine article, and that Time magazine article was on the infidelity of the president. President Clinton at the time, he had been with a young Washington intern, Monica Lewinsky, and uh, some of the behavior that he engaged in had become public. It was very embarrassing, I'm sure, for him, for his wife, his family. And Time magazine did an article on that, and in that article they also talked about the average American and the average American's response to Mr. Clinton's infidelity and immorality. And here's what they discovered, that the average American was really not willing to be too harsh on the president, because, not because of the scripture that says, judge not, for you shall not be judged, but because so many of them said, well, I've got a shameful past. Or I have things in my life now that I'm ashamed of, and so that inhibited them from actually saying, this is wrong, we shouldn't have that. Instead, they just sort of excused it. But here's what I saw as I read that article. That powerful driving force of shame that is work in our society today, and it's still at work in many of our churches. There's not a doubt in my mind today as I stand before you, That all of us here today have things in our past that we're ashamed of or that we were ashamed of before we were set free. There's not a doubt in my mind that some of you are here today and you're struggling with things right now that you're ashamed of. Maybe secret, hidden sins, sins that nobody else knows about but you. And yet that shame is affecting your walk and your life, and keeping you from becoming the man, the woman that God has called you to be through Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to ask you a question today. Just to answer it to yourself what are you ashamed of? What is it that's haunting you? Maybe it is something from your past and you just can't shake off the shame even though you've experienced the salvation of Christ. It just sort of follows you. It's like a ghost of guilt. And everywhere you go, you feel so ashamed. Or maybe you're here today and and there is something right now that's in your life and and you're just ashamed. You want to be set free. You want to be the man or the woman God has called you to be. but, But you're still living in that shame. Whatever it is, And wherever you are today, I want you to hear me very clearly when I say this. You don't have to live in shame. There is deliverance, there is forgiveness, and there is a new life to set you free from the shame that you're living with in your life today. And that's what Joshua chapter 5 verses 1 through 13 is all about. I've been preaching through the book of Joshua in our church, and I actually skipped this passage. I'd never preached on it before, and after I went through and preached on Jericho, as I read chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago, the Lord just said, now you need to preach on that. I don't always preach through every verse of every book that I preach on. Joshua is a classic example. I'm just several chapters to give my people a flavor and idea of the book, and then encourage them to get into it and study the Word for their own. But I skipped chapter 5, and God began to deal with me about that. And then this week, as Christian called, the Lord just put it on my heart. He said, this is the text I want you to share at New Philly. I may come back and share it next week at SIBC. I don't know. But this is a word for you today, and I'm convinced of that. Now, I say this often at SIBC, and I want to mention it here today. This book is an awesome book. Just even, listen, just as a historical book, as a book of wisdom, as a book of moral statutes, this is a great book, it's the greatest book in the world. But this is more than a book. We get more than history lessons, lessons about life. We receive from this book more than wisdom, more for guidance and how to live our lives. This book was written by those who were inspired by the Spirit of the living God. And so the words on the pages of this book, these are more than black ink splashed across a white page. This is the word of the living God. And the same God who is at work in the lives and hearts of those who pen these words, the same Spirit is at work when you and I open the pages of this book. And so today we're going to look at something that happened some 3,000, 3,500 years ago. But through the Spirit of the living God at work, He's going to take that day that God rolled the shame away from Israel, and He's going to make it true in your life today, the day that God rolls the shame away from you. So I want to encourage you as you start, be in prayer for yourself, for others around you, that the Word of God, the living Word of God would go forth, and that what happened 3,500 years ago would be a reality in your life and in the work of the Holy Spirit here at New Philly today. Let's read it, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was for their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of Egypt, or the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month, in the beginning on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land on cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. What an awesome passage. Can't believe I've skipped that in the past. But you know that's the way it is with God's Word, isn't it? You'll read it. And it may be something I've read a hundred, a thousand times. And I come back to it and there's new life and new meaning and the Spirit's at work. Now the key to this verse, the key to understanding what's happening here is verse 9. Because that's where God says, see today, today I have rolled away. Think of that image. I have rolled away like a heavy stone. I have rolled away the shame of Egypt. I like the way that the New Living Bible translates the verse because that's exactly what it says. Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Your slavery. Most Bible scholars who have looked at this passage will tell you that's it. It was the shame of slavery that was rolled away. Now, what is the shame of Egypt? It's the shame of slavery. Now, I don't think of anything that could possibly be more degrading more demeaning than slavery. Think about it. To belong to somebody else, to be their property, to have absolutely no power, no control over your own life, not to be able to live the life that you feel like you were called to live, the life that you could live, a slave. Now, throughout history, we have heard stories of slaves all over the world. Stories of sexual abuse, physical abuse, slaves whose children were taken from them and sold to someone else, demeaning many times, slaves just simply were worked so many long hours that they died of exhaustion. I've been doing a little research on slavery in New Testament times in the first century. And I read a story the other day, a true story recorded historically, about a slave who tripped and fell and dropped some plates on the ground, plates and cups, they, they broke. And the master took that slave in the middle of his home in his courtyard. He had a big pond there, and it was filled with eels with sharp teeth. For the punishment for this slave, he was cast into that pond, and those eels literally, slowly ate him to death while the other slaves watched. All because he dropped some dishes. No power. No control over their lives and destinies. That, that's what slavery does to people. And that's the way it was for the Israelites in Egypt. Now think about a couple of stories. You've probably heard both of them. Think about the story of the Pharaoh who said to those Israelite slaves... He said, you're going to keep making as many bricks for our great store cities, Python and Ramses. You're going to continue to make the bricks that we lay to build these cities, but you're to do them without us supplying you any straw. You're to find that straw for yourselves. Probably the worst story we remember is when Pharaoh said, all male babies born to these people are to be killed at birth. Now think about that. How demeaning, how degrading. No power either over their lives or over the lives of their children. That at least is a part of what God means when He says, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Now the context here is important. What's going on? Well, you know the story of Joshua. Joshua, after 40 long years in the desert, in the wilderness... The children of Israel are now finally standing on that sacred earth, that holy ground of the promised land. The land that God had promised to Abraham years and years before. They're free. They're they're free. Now they can make real plans. Now they're about to have a home for themselves. In fact, it's theirs already by the promise of God. And as they step out in faith and take it, it will become a reality in their lives. And that's what the book of Joshua is about. All of a sudden, their families, their children, they have a future. They're free from their slavery. God says, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. Now, how do we connect that story with our lives and our churches today? Well, listen closely, because in the scriptures, Egypt is known as a Bible type. You familiar with that phrase, a Bible type? That is, in, in the Bible, there are types that stand for something, they point to something that's larger than themselves. A Bible type is an event. It's almost always a historical event, a literal event. Or it could be an image that we find somewhere in Scripture, usually in the Old Testament, almost always. But that event or that image points beyond itself and ultimately it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the Gospel and has deep spiritual meaning for our lives. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of the most significant types in the Bible was the brazen altar in the tabernacle. In fact, as soon as you entered the tabernacle, there was the brazen altar. You couldn't couldn't progress any further into the tabernacle until first you dealt with your sins. And there was that brazen altar where all the sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. What did that altar point to? Well, it ultimately is a sign, a symbol, a type of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you read in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, all the animals and all the blood shed there, that blood, all those thousands of animals slain there, pointed beyond themselves to the ultimate fulfillment in who? Our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Those are strong Bible types. The high priest in the New Testament points ultimately to Christ, our high priest, but also points to you and me as priests and ministers of the New Covenant. In fact, the tabernacle and the entire design of the tabernacle was a shadow, a copy, the author of Hebrews tells us, of the real thing in heaven. The Passover in Egypt is a Bible type. What does it point us to? Again, it points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. God told His people to mark their doorpost on the top, on the bottom, and on either side. So that thousands of years before crosses were known to man and used as form of execution, God had His people paint in blood on their doors a sign of the cross. All of these things are Bible-type circumcision in the Old Covenant, foreshadows baptism in the New Covenant, and ultimately community covenant membership. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. In fact, both Passover and circumcision are seen in this passage. They're a vital part of what this passage is about. I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. One of my favorite passages of Scripture because it does take this Bible type that we're talking about so clearly today and lays it out for us. The Apostle Paul is writing, and really he's giving a warning here, But I want us to simply look at the beginning of this passage because that's where we see the type. He says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, if you just look at those four verses, you can see very plainly what Paul's doing. We see the image of baptism and the image of Passover celebration, communion, mirrored there. And that's what we're seeing back here in Joshua chapter 5. So again, Bible types are events or images in the Old Testament that ultimately point beyond themselves, and we see their ultimate fulfillment in the pages of the New Testament and in the person in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Egypt and the delivery of God's people, the Israelites from Egypt, is a major Bible type. That's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10. What kind of Bible type is Egypt? And the answer is, it is a type of our slavery to sin and the shame of sin in our lives. Think about Israel when they were in Egypt. When Moses stood at the burning bush, he asked God, What is your name? Who are you? So I can tell my people when I return. They didn't know the name of their God. Their parents had not passed it on. Somewhere along the way, the ball was dropped. The torch was dropped. So they didn't even know the name of this God. And yet they're crying out. And God says to Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. They didn't even know who God was. They didn't even know what to call Him. I wonder how many people maybe we have here today that you cried out in your pain and your heartache and your suffering. Maybe you're agnostic, atheist. Maybe you're just a marginal believer of whatever faith. And you cried out to some unknown God because the pain was so bad you didn't know where else to go, where else to turn. You cried out to God and God heard your cry. And God revealed Himself to you and God delivered you. Well, that's what's happening here. God delivered a people who didn't even know His name, didn't even know who He was, didn't know His nature. He delivered them from their slavery and oppression. Boy, that's a picture of all of us, of me and you. So Egypt's a Bible type. It's a symbol that reflects the greater reality of all of our slavery to sin, the slavery that all of us have experienced at one time in our lives. Egypt represents the world. And the Pharaoh, to be even more specific, is a symbol of the prince of the power of the air, Satan, And there's so many passages of Scripture that talk about those who are under the power of Satan, those who are walking in darkness and death. I want to look at two passages of Scripture with you today in the New Testament. One is in Romans chapter 6, verse 20. And the other, if you want to mark your Bible, is in uh, John chapter 8. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. And I'll read verses 20, 21, and 22. Look at what Paul says here For when you were slaves of sin, You were free in regard to righteousness. What does that mean? When you were slaves of sin, you couldn't do anything righteous. You couldn't live for God. You couldn't live the life that God wanted you to live. You were a slave. Paul says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now look at verse 21. But what fruit you were getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. Now, John 8, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, a very well-known passage. Jesus is speaking in verse 31, and here's what it says. So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in Him, "'If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples.'" And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And, of course, they go on to say, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. That really wasn't quite true, was it? (laughs) How is it that you say you will become free? So, here's what I want you to see how this passage in Joshua chapter 5 ultimately points to me and to you. Disciples and followers of Jesus Christ set free from our slavery to sin. Set free, listen, from the shame that sin brings into our lives. But now I want you to notice those other two very clear Bible types that I've already mentioned that are found in Joshua 5. And that set us free from sin and shame. And the first one is in verses 2 through 7. So back to Joshua 5. Just look down verses 2 through 7. And you'll see there that what he's describing is what? Circumcision. Circumcision. Now, what does circumcision point to in the New Testament? Ultimately, circumcision in the New Testament points to baptism. Which points to covenant membership. The whole book of Joshua, you know what it's about? The covenant community of God. God's people taking hold of God's promises and knowing all all that He's he's promised to give them. That's what Joshua's about. So circumcision is the counterpart of baptism in the New Testament. Now, I am a Baptist, and, you know, I just cringed when he said Southern Baptist. I don't even say Southern Baptist at SIBC. (laughs) I love what E.V. Hill said about Anybody know E.V. Hill? He's been a good... E.V. Hill is a big African-American preacher in Los Angeles for years. And we invited him years ago to preach at one of our big 10,000-member uh, conventions in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I was at that convention, and E.V. Hill got up there. And he's not a Southern Baptist. He got up there and he said, I love you, Southern Baptist. And we were all excited. Oh, he loves us. And I want to tell you why I love you. He says, I love you not because of who you are. I love you because of who you think you are. So I don't even mention Southern Baptist, but I love Southern Baptists. And I'll tell you, I am a Baptist. I didn't grow up Baptist, but I'm a Baptist by calling. I am a Baptist by um, choice, and I'm a Baptist by conviction. Now, I'm not a company man, and I'm not a denominationalist. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this about baptism. I won't say a word about baptism in a minute, but first let's look at what the Scripture says. It says, We've all been baptized by one body into one spirit, or by one spirit into one body, the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. Now, that body that we've been baptized to is not a denominational body, right? It's not a Baptist body. It's not a charismatic body. It's not a Presbyterian body. It's not a Methodist body. It is the body of Jesus Christ. And I'll often say at SIBC that I really think Baptists are the minority in our church. Our focus is on the body of Christ. We have people from multiple denominations and multiple backgrounds. And that's what I love so much about our church. By the way, do you want to know who the first denominationalists were? The disciples. Just write this scripture down. You go check it out for yourself. Mark 9, 3, and 8. John the Beloved comes to Jesus and he says with the other disciples around him, he says this, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. What does that sound like to you? (laughs) And Jesus said, no way. He said, he who's not against us is for us. Jesus with open arms welcomed anybody that was about the Spirit and the work and the ministry of Him. We need to do the same thing. We're always pointing out our differences. We're always trying to criticize our theology. I want to tell you something about theology. I've got a doctorate in theology, but let me tell you, I see through a mirror dimly. Someday I'll see face to face. And God's taught me enough over the years to realize that we may describe things differently. We may see things differently. We may look at the same coin, but you're looking at the head and I'm looking at the tail. But God's looking at our hearts. So ultimately... Jesus rebuked John and His disciples. They were the first denominationalists. But back to what I'm saying, I'm a Baptist. And of course, Baptists are known most for what? Immersion baptism. When people come to, to faith, we, we dunk them in the water. Now, chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, which is ultimately spiritual fulfillment, does describe baptism. Here's what it says. We were buried with Him in baptism, and I say this when I I baptize people, buried with Him in baptism as they go beneath the water, raised to live a new life in Christ. That's a picture, that's a symbol. It doesn't save, not the waters of the baptistry, but it's a picture and it's a symbol of what happened to all of us the moment we received Christ as Savior. We died to our old sin, We were raised to a new life, born again to walk in Jesus Christ. Down into the water, dying to old self. Up from the water, a symbol of new life in Christ. Now, I'm not here to sell you on immersion baptism. I don't push it at SIBC. Uh, The truth is that ultimately what this points us to is our baptism into Christ. More than that, it points us to something else. It points us to our belonging to one another, to Christ and to one another, as members of His covenant community. So the circumcision that took place that day was all about belonging to the covenant community. Now that's why church membership matters. Whether we go through a new members class, Whatever it is we have to do to say, I'm committed, I'm a disciple, I'm joining up, I want to be a part of this community, I belong to Christ and I belong to His people, and together with them I've been set free from my slavery to sin and shame, and I want to live for Him. Now, that's the first Bible type in this passage, circumcision. Notice the second one. In verse 10, we read about the celebration of the Passover. A clear sign that points us today to what? Communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He took the Passover, he broke the bread with his disciples, and he said, now I'm going to give new meaning to this old covenant practice. Now it's going to remind you of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And every time we celebrate communion, at least in part, we celebrate our deliverance from the sin and shame apart from Jesus Christ. communion reminds us that we don't have to live in shame. Communion reminds us that we've been set free. Communion reminds us that we have new lives, new hearts, a new master. We're no longer walking under the prince of the power of the air. We no longer belong to the one who steals and kills and destroys. So here's what I want you to see at the risk of just being redundant, this passage in Joshua chapter 5 clearly reminds us and points us to the power of the cross of Jesus Christ to set us free from sin and shame. Now, two more things I want you to see. First, in verses 11 and 12, we read that for the first time, the Israelites ate of the fruit of the promised land. They tasted Let me put it that way. They tasted real food. And that day, that manna from heaven, Aaron, in which they survived, went away. And now they're eating of the fruit of the land. Now they're not surviving. They're thriving. I heard that in a prophetic prayer earlier. And the Lord spoke to me and said, make sure and reiterate that again. The manna went away the day they ate of the fruit of the land. But then notice the second thing in verse 9. They named that place where God did this great work. They named it Gilgal, which means to roll away. To roll away. Now, all this is a background. Let me share with you two truths today that I hope God will use, the Holy Spirit will use in your life. My prayer is that these truths will set you free from the shame and the sin and, the, and the, just the, the, um, the way Satan has strapped you down and kept you from being who God called you to be. Here's the first truth. Both of these are very simple. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you don't have to live in shame. I want to say that again. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a son of the living God, you don't have to live in shame. I want to tell you a true story about a young lady who came to our church. I'll call her June. That's not her real name. June was from Australia. She was Australian-Korean. And uh, she came and attended SIBC for a couple of years. She was saved. She gave her heart to Christ. But June was still haunted by a past That had involved uh, a lot of uh, sexual misgivings. She'd actually had an abortion at one time. Some things she was very ashamed of. And when she got free, she began to grow. And then a young man in our church, who it turns out was on a mission to, uh, how can I say it, score with every woman he met, uh, laid eyes on June. And June began to see him. Now, I need to tell you about this young man. He talked a good talk. He quoted long portions of Scripture. He'd been raised in the church. He could debate theology with me. Brilliant young man. He was a graduate of a a top school. If I named a school, you'd know it. It was one of those schools everybody wants to get into. Brilliant young man. And June opened up to him. And she shared about her shameful past life. And it wasn't long after that that June had a very traumatic experience and came to realize through a set of events that this young man was in the process of trying to bed her. So one of the older women in our church, uh, one of my favorite ladies, a young Filipino lady, been with us for years. I say young, young to me, older to June. She got with her and she said, you need to see the pastor. You need to share this with Pastor Dan. And so she contacted me, and we we gathered together, and we prayed for June. We saw her delivered from her shame. Of course, we did what any good pastor does. We disciplined uh, the young man, uh, and he chose not to come under discipline. He left the church. But we disciplined the young man that had been just heaping shame on her. And from time to time, I hear from June. Guess where she is now, by the way? In Sydney, Australia, guess what I'm going to send to her? A Facebook message that tells about the new church that's opening in Sydney, Australia. But you don't have to live with your shame. God set you free, listen, not only from your sin and your past life, God has set you free from the shame, the heavy weight, the stone, if you will, of shame that you're carrying. And that's why circumcision or baptism or maybe we should say covenant membership, church membership, that's why ultimately belonging to a community of believers is so important. We encourage each other, we minister to each other, we need each other. That's why as pastors and elders we are charged to guard over the sheep and to carefully watch for wolves among the flock. June was being dragged down by a wolf. She was reminded of her past constantly. And when she opened up and shared honestly, no one placed shame on her. But a group of believers gathered around her in love, witnessed to her, shared their own stories, and we saw her delivered. You don't have to live with shame in your life. You know, there's a story about Martin Luther, the great reformer. One night in his study, he had a, a, a visitation from Satan. Satan just appeared to him, and Satan began to write on the walls of Martin Luther's study past sins and shameful things in his life, current battles maybe that he was having. And from time to time, the devil would turn around and he would say to Martin Luther, or Martin Luther would say to the devil, he'd say, is that all? And the devil would turn around and he'd write some more of Martin Luther's sinful, shameful past. And finally, Martin Luther asked the devil, is that all? And the devil said... Isn't it enough? And Martin Luther quoted 1 John 1, 1.7. He said, now right across all those sins, these words, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And all of a sudden, that vision and all of his sin on the wall vanished. Now some of you have Satan whispering in your ear. Everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, Satan is reminding you of some shameful event in your past. Next time you hear that sinister voice, I want you to do two things. I want you to remind Satan, just as Martin Luther did, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all sin. And then the second thing to do while you're at it, remind Satan of his destiny. In fact, let me tell you something about Satan. I grew up a city boy. My wife is a country girl. If you think I have an accent, I need to bring my wife. I don't have an accent compared to my wife. She had a group of girls over last fall. She'd have them over every Wednesday at the house. And we had some girls from Malaysia, Korea, just a lot of second language people. and And Sherry would get to talking using all these southern sayings and colloquialisms. You know, instead of saying nice or ice cream, Sherry says nice and ice cream. <laughs> she, she grew up in the country, went to school barefoot. She's not here today. I can tell all the stories. on. Huh? <laughs> but, but that what was I talking about anyway? <laughs> oh, but after I started dating my, my wife who'd grown up in the country, I heard an interesting story. And I grew up in the city. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And I always thought that chicken came from the grocery store. You know, that's where we got it. We walked in the store, that was a pack of frozen chicken. You brought it, you took it home, and you ate it. Well, when Sherry was growing up, you know, she was with her parents and her grandparents. And often, when it was time for chicken, they'd just go out in the chicken yard at night. And they'd scatter the seed for the chickens to come eat. And she says, Oh my, I say, you know what's coming. And on more than one occasion... She said she'd watch her grandmother just talking, you know, with her sister and they're carrying on talking, all of a sudden, grandmother run chicken wring its neck and throw it over the side of the chicken yard. And for all practical purposes, that chicken was dead once it hit the ground. But it would still sit there, and if you weren't careful, if you got too close, it could scratch you or peck you. All those nerve endings were still at work. But for all practical purposes, the chicken was dead. Now I want you to remember that about Satan. On the cross. Jesus reached out and wrung Satan's neck. He's finished, he's over, but he's still dangerous. And if you get close to him, he will hurt you. So maybe Satan has entered into your life, maybe through somebody else, like in June's case. Maybe through just simply his sinister voice that you're listening to instead of the voice of God. And he's reminding you of some shame in your life. One of our greatest ministries at SIB is Pure Desire. And we have men, we do have one for women also. Uh, it's, it, right now it's not going, but we have a lot of men struggling with pornography and sexual sin. You know, when I was growing up, in order to see pornography, we had to purchase it or find it in the garbage. Nowadays, all you have to do is get on the Internet. And it's searching for you. I was on the other night on a sports uh, maybe ESPN or some sports network I can't remember my wife was there and I, I said look at this and there was really it was basically porn advertisements on the sports site so men so many men are getting roped into this it's a secret sin nobody sees nobody knows but it's poisoning our lives our marriages our families Our Pure Desire leader at SIBC has been in his mid-40s. He is, uh, all his life, he's struggled with same-sex tendencies. You know what? He's the leader. He's been completely clean from pornography for over a decade. He's made his life celibate to the Lord. I don't understand all the issues involved in homosexuality and same-sex attraction, but I tell you what, when I look at this man in his 40s, as a leader of this group, leading mostly heterosexual men. But he's doing it out of purity. He's been set free from shame. And he's made a decision, yes, I do struggle with this, but I'm going to be free and clean and minister to the Lord. I'm giving my life celibate to Christ. There are a lot of shame, a lot of secret sins. Here's what I want you to hear me say. You don't have to live in that shame. Years ago, I heard a story of a young lady who had committed adultery against her husband. She was so ashamed. She received healing, forgiveness. She reconciled with her husband, told him, confessed to him. But she was so burdened with the shame. And Satan got in and began to bring so much guilt into her life that she actually began to just lose her sanity. God blessed her and her husband with a child. One day her husband came home unexpectedly. Uh, Just didn't know really why, but he felt the Lord had asked him to come home. And he found his wife literally trying to choke their little child to death. After counseling and therapy, she was set free and a lot of prayer. But they asked her why. And she said, I was so ashamed of what I'd done that I felt like the only thing I could do was give God what was closest to me. Now, sin and shame can actually drive you crazy if you let it. Don't live in that shame. You don't have to. Here's the second truth I want to share with you. Only God can roll away the shame from your life. Only God can roll the shame away from your life. I love this image in this, in this passage in Joshua of God rolling away the shame like a boulder, like a great stone. Try as we may, we can't even budge It it won't move. We don't have the power to roll that stone away, but God can. And I love this picture because like everything else in this passage, ultimately it points forward into the New Testament. And I can't help but think of Pilate, that Roman governor, who sealed the tomb and who placed the boulder, the stone there, so that no one could roll it away. But who rolled that stone away? God sent His angel. God rolled the stone away. And out of the tomb, those women who went to embalm the Lord Jesus Christ on Sunday morning found an empty tomb and an angel who said, He is not here, He has risen. When Jesus Christ came out of that tomb, let me tell you what happened. Hebrews 12 and 2 puts it this way. It says that Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame for the joy set before Him. And God rolled the stone away of the shame of His Son's grave, and He came out alive forevermore. And with Him, you and I came out with new life. No more shame, no more sin set free from the sinful old lives we used to live. Only God can do that. You know the story in John of Lazarus. Jesus came and He raised him from the dead. And of course, one of the most significant things about that story is Lazarus came out of the tomb. Unlike the Lord, he was still wrapped in his grave clothes. I wonder how many of you here today are like that. You've come forth from the grave. Christ has given you new life. And yet you're still walking around in those grave clothes of your sin and shame. It's interesting in that story, to me it's interesting, that Jesus did not unwrap Lazarus. But He commanded His disciples standing around Him, now you take the grave clothes off of Him. That's what we're called to do. We are called on to unwrap one another from those grave clothes of shame and sin, that's what New Testament life and New Testament community is all about. I wonder how many of you here today still struggling in the grave clothes of shame. God is calling you to come out to share with others who will come alongside you and unwrap you from those grave clothes of shame that are keeping you from being the man, the woman, that Christ has called you to be. You know, all of us are in this together. We're all sons of the living God. We're all disciples of Christ. And all of us need desperately to be set free from our shame. Today, I want to encourage you to do something for me. I want to encourage you to be set free from shame. Some of you, and this is where I heard Aaron earlier, and the Lord really spoke to me. Some of you are believers. You're disciples. But you're still eating manna. You're just surviving in the wilderness. God is gracious to give you that manna. But God is calling you to something more. Not to just survive, but to thrive. He wants you in the promised land that He has for you in this church. And God wants you to step into that land. Trust Him. Don't be like that former generation. But step into that land and take hold of the fruit that is there and I promise you, you'll stop eating manna and you'll begin to taste the real fruit of what God has for you and your life. Only God can roll the stone away. But ultimately the question is, will we ask Him? Will we trust Him? Will we obediently and faithfully believe that God will set us free? Let me pray with you today. Lord, I thank you for New Philly. I thank you for this church today and just the evident power and presence of your spirit at work here. Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that uh, just given birth in my heart a couple of weeks ago. At the time, I didn't realize it really more than anything else. It was for this time and this day. And I thank you that I've been able to share it with, with these, just Lord, just precious group of disciples. I sense you doing a great work in this church and in the lives of those who are here. My prayer today is that shame would be rolled away. My prayer today is that even as the Israelites had such a powerful experience that day in the presence of the Lord, that they named that place always a sign of something significant. Let's mark this. Let's, let's put an altar here. Let's remember what happened. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that people would name this day in their lives. That they would say, this was the day that the shame was rolled away. This was the day that God set me free to be all that He's called me to be to fulfill the plans that He has for my life. And Lord, I pray that the power and presence of Your Holy Spirit would come today and make that possible through Your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name we pray.